This episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title from Vanessa Riley, an Earl, the Girl, and a Toddler. Hey Maggie, did you know Vanessa Riley has a new book out? I did not. Why don't you refresh me on who Vanessa Riley is? Vanessa Riley is an award-winning author of Regency and historical romances, featuring dazzling multicultural communities and powerful persons of color. To fuel her interest in the Regency and early Victorian eras, she made time for attending Renaissance fairs and consuming period novels and films while obtaining her PhD in mechanical engineering, get this, from Stanford. She is a member of the Romance Writers of America and the Historical Novel Society, as well as a Christian Book Lovers Board member. A frequent speaker at women's events, she lives in Georgia with her military husband and teenage kid. You can visit her online at vanessariley.com. She just wrote a book that I just finished. A Duke, A Lady, and a Baby? I wanted to check that out. I love historical romance, and I'm always looking for non-typical Regency and Victorian settings and inclusivity. Yeah, this is the sequel. It's a part of her The Widow's Grace series which is about a sisterhood of widows battling society to regain their rights. This one's called An Earl, the Girl, and a Toddler. What's this book about? Okay, well here's the summary. Surviving a shipwreck en route to London from Jamaica was just the start of Jemina's St. Maur's nightmare. Suffering from amnesia, she was separated from anyone who might know her and imprisoned in Bedlam. She was freed only because barrister Daniel Thackeray, Lord Ashbrook, was convinced to betray the one thing he holds dear, the law. Desperate to unearth her true identity, Jamina's only chance is to purloin dangerous secrets with the help from the widow's grace, which means staying steps ahead of the formidable Daniel, no matter how strongly she is drawn to him. Married only by proxy, now widowed by shipwreck, Daniel is determined to protect his little stepdaughter, Hope from his family's scandalous reputation. That's why he has dedicated himself not just to the law, but to remaining as proper, upstanding, and boring as can be. But the closer he becomes to the mysterious, alluring Jemina, the more Daniel is tempted to break the very rule of law to which he devoted his life. And as ruthless adversaries close in, will the truth require him and Jemina to sacrifice their one chance at happiness? Holy moly, it's got a shipwreck, scandal, and a hot lord. Where can I find it? You can find An Earl, The Girl, and a Toddler by Vanessa Riley wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. And I am Harmony. This week we're reading the second half of The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd. What'd you think of the second half, Harmony? I liked it. I like this book in general. I like that Lavi becomes a librarian. There was some justice for Lavi. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. I don't know if I was satisfied. I like the fact that Anna goes on to write a real-life poem that is known in history today called Thunder or something like that. But yeah, overall, I liked it. What'd you think, Maggie? 
I agree. I think overall it was a positive experience. And I think that some of the gripes that we were talking about from the first half of the book did get resolved in the second half of the book. But I don't think that there was enough justice for Lobby and there was no justice for Judith at all. Overall, I would say it was a decent experience the second time around. But yeah, I just don't know that the book went far enough with some of the things that it set up in the first half for my taste. I do want to talk a little bit before we get into this too much. I think I in particular was super hard on Sumunk Kid last episode in terms of some of the similarities that I saw in this book towards a book like The Passion of Mary Magdalene, which is a personal gripe of mine because The Passion of Mary Magdalene did not get as much press in this book. And this book itself upset a lot of people and got all that press. And there's all these narratives around Jesus having a wife, but Elizabeth Cunningham's narrative is never included in that mainstream dialogue because it's so incredibly offensive to so many people, I guess. Maybe, I don't know, because it's sexual. But to be fair to Sue Monk Kid, she has apparently a long history of religious writing and most of her earlier works are memoirs about her relationship to religion. So I just thought I should put that disclaimer out there. Yeah, it's true. She has a lot of training, I think, in religious writing. And I think that when I was doing a little bit of research on her motivations for this book, some of the feminist aspects of it are what kicked in later because the Christian aspect has always been really ingrained in her, I I think, writing style. I think that sometimes when you're dealing with such well-known stories and you're riffing off of them, especially off real historical periods, it's hard to read two books about a similar period, especially when dealing with the same or at least the same central figure back to back, because there's certain things that are just going to be mirrored in both because that's either what actually happened historically, or as with Jesus, that's just the story we know. So all of those elements have to be dealt with in some way. Yeah. Yeah, I think my issue was still with the mention of Isis, but maybe there's some scholarship out there that connects the Isis or Osiris story that both Sumant Kidd and Elizabeth Cunningham witnessed and saw, and that's why they drew those parallels. Or maybe I just don't know enough about Isis and Osiris's story to pick up on why that was symbolic to both of them. Or maybe it is just a really weird coincidence. But that in particular last episode kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, why is this writer who gets all this press using the same story that I know is prominently featured in another book with similar subject matter. (laughs) Yeah, I feel you. To be fair, though, the Isis thing in this narrative, it comes up twice, but it is definitely a much... It's not central to the story like it is in The Passion of Mary Magdalene. Yeah, no, that's fair. So what are some of the main things you want to talk about today, Maggie? Oh, and by the way, everyone, before I forget, the poem that is a real poem in real life, and apparently it has an unattributed author, is called The Thunder, The Perfect Mind, or The Thunder, Perfect Mind. And there's a translation by Hall Tossig, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, and I'm sorry about that. That's a, a cool little Easter egg as part of it. I think for me, following off our conversation last time, there are three sort of things that I wanted to circle back about. The first I think is Anna's character growth and how she treats others because I I think that we see some positive changes in the second half of the novel there. The second thing I think we definitely need to unpack is this idea of justice for Lobby because as we've both mentioned there's definitely some rectification of what happens whether it goes far enough I don't personally think so. I'm 
getting the sense that you probably agree, but I think there's more to unpack there. And then the third thing is sort of, I guess, more of a general sort of reflection to a certain extent, I think, on now that we've read these two books, you know, purposefully in conjunction with each other. Sue Monk Kid has an author's note at the back talking about why everyone assumed that Jesus was wifeless. And I think it is interesting maybe to reflect a little bit on the ways in which history systemically erases women and how that affects us today. Because not only is that the intention behind this book, but Honor herself deals with that as a main theme throughout the story, thinking about the fact that she's so happy to be working in scholarship, but the world is written by men. So I don't know if you have a place that you want to start within any of that, but those are, I think, the three main themes that come to my mind now that we finished the book. Okay, well, let's talk maybe about woman's erasure because Sumon Kid in her author's note, which everyone should read if they do read this book because it's got a lot of cool historical facts, does mention that it would have been weird if Jesus didn't have a wife. And this is something that a ton of people have noticed throughout the Jesus narrative, right? I'm sure it was mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, even though I haven't read it. And you're right that Anna's whole thing throughout this book is giving herself a voice and then giving other women a voice. So I guess this stands out to me so much because some of the criticism I've seen for this book, primarily written by old stuffy white men, is that Jesus could never have a wife. And what little I do know from high school philosophy, right, this is not a terribly high-minded thing to know, is that a lot of Jesus's story was created or rewritten during the Council of Nicaea. Essentially what happened, and this is, Harmony's not, I'm not looking anything up for this, so this is basically what I remember from high school philosophy. It was a long time ago, so please forgive me. But essentially what happened is that a Roman emperor came into rule and decided he really liked Jesus's story and adopted it as himself. And there were cults of Christianity in Rome. This was about 200 years after Jesus had died that had sprung up everywhere. And traditionally, Rome likes to smush out any religion that could be a threat. Christianity was a threat because it was monotheistic in the same way that Judaism was. And the Romans were not nice to the Jews either. But also because it as Maggie and I have mentioned before, Christianity was deeply radical in that it ended up being really non-hierarchical compared to other religions of the time. But Constantine became emperor, decided he liked it. And I think what happened, according to Monk, there was there were two of these councils. But I think what happened is all of these people, all of these different cult leaders came together during the Council of Nicaea, and they decided the first, this was the first council, they decided the first narrative of what was, like, which people's beliefs, which cult's beliefs would end up being officially Christianity. And then I think that was adopted by Constantine. Yeah, so that was the Council of Nicaea. And Suman Kid mentions how they decided during that first council that Jesus was divine versus human. So that's interesting. And I think the idea of him having a wife would have made him more human. And so maybe that's part of why it got written out. There's also during one of these councils, I don't know much about it, but there was a cult that believed more in Mary Magdalene, her role as a saint, essentially, before saints were a thing, and had a greater story for her. But she got written out of the narrative, too. So there, there is some historical precedent that suggests that women were written out of the narrative even more. And what we see in the Bible just simply isn't necessarily fact. We, we know that 
for a fact because there were all these cult leaders that came together and were like, we have these conflicting stories. This is the one that we're going to decide is right. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I knew about some of that, but, you know, hearing about how more linearly it intertwined is helpful. I think it's also interesting, too, because Kid talks in the back about this idea that I think as a historian today, I see and deal with and contend with often, which is essentially that anything that was happening in the quote unquote woman's sphere was considered to be irrelevant to people and or just so standard and so mundane and so non-changing that why would you bother recording any of it? Of course, Jesus had a wife. Everybody had a wife, especially in Judaism at that time. That was just what people did. Why would anyone bother to make note of it? And I think it really just emphasizes the ways in which women have been explicitly and implicitly silenced for eons essentially at the very least in western culture because what was happening in other indigenous cultures around the world was often quite different but it means that everything we know and think about history is irrevocably to a certain extent filtered through the rich white guy lens of who gets to choose what stories were told and the more we discover about other historical artifacts and and you know return to papers that were written in foundational ages ago, there's ways in which we can start to rectify that. But there's definitely this sad part of me that really is sitting with the fact after finishing this book that once you silence someone, just because the world gets better later, it can't undo that damage that was done. That person was still silenced and their voice still mattered, or it should have mattered and it was erased. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I also think one of the great things that this book does is they, part of the reason why so many voices are silenced aren't just because of the devaluing of women's work and women's life. A part of it is just because there aren't as many women who are able or given enough power or to speak for themselves. And so we mentioned this a little bit last episode, but the fact that Anna can write I think if we're looking at this from a historical lens is super duper important. And it's important throughout the book too, but just this idea that you have somebody who is literate and therefore is able to record their own history seems really powerful to me because most women wouldn't have been. I agree. And I think something that really solidifies in the second half of the book too, that I think is probably going to tie into maybe moving this conversation forward is that one of the ways that Anna, I think, really changes is that when she goes to this temple, essentially, where she becomes a head librarian and scholar, part of what she does is, A, she starts in the second half of the book teaching other people how to read and write, which was something that bugged me in the first half of the book that wasn't like a, no doubt, maybe you should be doing this. But she also reflects on some of the earlier writings she did about the matriarchs in the Bible, and she finishes that project. And she really makes it her life's goal to tell not only her story, but the story of other women so that it can be recorded forever. And it's really, at least, you know, in the book, it's radical what she's up to. Yaltha says at the end of the book, right in, in the last pages of it, Yaltha convinces Anna to copy her work and bury it because it's that it's that much of a threat. So she says on page 402. Her voice sharpened. 
Listen to me, Anna. You've dared much with your words. So much that a time will come when men will try and silence them. The hillside will keep your work safe. I simply stared at her, trying to make sense of her pronouncement. My face must have been written with doubt. You're not listening, she said. Think what you've written. I scrolled through them in my head. Stories of the matriarchs, the rape and maiming of Tabitha, the terrors men inflicted on women, the cruelties of Antipas, the braveries of Phasalus, my marriage to Jesus, the death of Susanna, the exile of Yaltha, the enslavement of Diodora, the power of Sophia, the story of Isis, thunder, perfect mind, and a plethora of other ideas about women that turned traditionally held beliefs upside down. And these were only a portion. I don't understand. I broke off because I did understand. I just didn't want to. Copies of your writings are gradually being dispersed, she said. They shed a beautiful light, but they will unsettle people and threaten their certainties. There will come a time, mark down my words, I foresee it, when men will try to destroy what you've written. I think that that ending sentiment, I mean, maybe it's a little bit over the head with the message from a craft standpoint, but I think it is really powerful and important that the reason that women weren't allowed to learn to read or write was because it was legitimate, tangible power that had the ability to change people's minds and unsettle their understandings of how the world works. And we're still seeing the ramifications of the fact that people don't want to be pushed out of their ideological comfort zone today. I think in some ways, the conversations are still the same too, just, you know, between men and women. And in some ways, they become even more complicated thinking about white supremacy, transphobia, and other really deeply societally ingrained power structures that are messed up. And the ruling class is scared of what happens when people have the power to tell their own stories. I agree. For listeners, real quick, I want to give a quick disclaimer or correction that Maggie meant the Torah when she said the Bible. Anna is writing about the matriarchs and women that appear in the Torah or the first testament of the Bible. But I think that you said a lot of really interesting things there. That passage is interesting because in the author's note, we learned that that's where the poem, The Thunder, Perfect Mind is found. Is It's found in a hillside. It's also interesting because we know that the Great Library of Alexandria burns. So this is a way to preserve the work, I think, kind of from a craft. There, there's some craft things that are going on there that are trying to tie this into this historical period. But what I think of most from that passage is the, the idea of premonition. And I'm going to lead us in a slightly different path real quick. One thing that like is very subtle throughout this book, even though magic doesn't really exist in this world, Anna herself has premonitions. And this is really interesting to me because in the Bible, there is a character called Anna, the prophetess. And it's spelled slightly differently. And Anna is an old woman in these stories. But I thought that was a really interesting tie-in. And I wasn't sure what was going on on with that and what that says about this idea of voice, this idea of premonitions for the future. Because Anna is supposed to be a, an original character. She is OC. But I, I think that that was an interesting tie-in that we we have Anna the prophetess who is a character and then we have Anna and both of them seem to see the future. And I wondered what you thought of in terms of what that means for voice. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that prophetess to begin with, so would not have picked up on that anyways. But you're right, there is this idea of premonition and intuition. Yaltha has them. I mean, Yaltha is the one speaking about the premonition in that passage. 
Well, she doesn't, though. She has it this time, but in that passage, a part that you didn't read that happens shortly after, that's clarified, as Anna says that Yaltha doesn't usually have premonitions. That's her thing. She's talking from sense, and that's where... I think I think that's how we're differentiating this from just being about the Library of Alexandria. But only Anna has them. And that's the only case of actual magic that we see in this narrative. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess my mind sort of splits down two paths here. One, which to say that our contemporary definition of magic doesn't match up with what would differentiate somebody from being a regular non-magical human in this time period. As much as witchcraft was feared and people were horrifically murdered for it, for, for false claims of it, there was in certain circumstances more leeway as to what was accepted as being reality. And premonitions in second sense was definitely part of that at the very least for a long time. But I do think that this idea of voice relating to the premonitions is really interesting. And this is a half-baked thought, because like I said, I didn't really put any of that together before you said it. So sorry, as I sort of talked myself into sense here. But I think that Anna having her own voice and the power to read and write and all of those things being interchanged means that Anna has always had a really, really clear sense of who she is and what she's up to, even in her darkest moments. And I wonder if this premonition aspect comes from a place of surety and authority and power. I wonder if metaphorically it signifies some of those things for Anna because she has access to information and knowledge to make predictions that other women at this time simply don't always have and are, you know, actively kept from. I think that maybe there's some holes in that theory considering the fact that especially at the end, we're in a society of, we, we move to a group of learned women who have been give, given an educational opportunity and are scholars now, and none of them also have it. But I don't know, I think that having knowledge and having power in that sense, sometimes enables people to think about the future in a different and more sure way, because you can track patterns and things like that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think, I mean, this whole idea is a half-baked on my part, but I thought it was interesting to give Anna's character in particular because she is the, the writer of the book. She is the scribe. But this kind of, this idea of prophecy also reminds me of woman's intuition, which is kind of a more Yaltha trait in that that is a more mystical folk, folk medicine-y type of thing. So it's interesting that you relate it to authority because in a lot of ways, woman intuition is just trusting your gut. And Anna, because she is privileged in many ways and because she is well-learned, is able to trust her gut more and her instinct. And that's genuinely viewed as a positive, empowering thing for women. Yeah. Do you want to go along those lines anymore? And if not, I have another point to bring up to your point about the whole burying of the poem and, and, and the scribes. I was also thinking about the woman's intuition line too, and the ways in which women have often been ascribed to, you know, have that sort of second sense. I think in Anna's case, it's interesting though, because often that's talked about not always, but often it's talking, it's also paired with a mother's intuition about her kids and things like that and something not being right or anything. But in this case, Anna doesn't have 
well, I shouldn't say that. She she is a mother, but Anna doesn't have any live children and her relationship to motherhood is much different because of that. So her intuition then is more about the world and what will happen. Which reminds me of Anna the prophetess. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, I think that your initial theory about Anna the prophetess, I wouldn't be surprised if this Anna was a nod to that biblical character. Okay. Another thing, you were talking a lot about how Anna's ideas in themselves were in, in themselves were disruptive to the world and therefore dangerous and therefore people were going to come after her because of her ideas. And to me that really solidifies Christianity and what both these stories have told us about Christianity thus far. And to be fair, these are both feminist takes on Christianity, right? So they're going to be searching for the more equitable, more peaceful, and more justice-oriented stories and versions. And both of these tales, too, do a lot to humanize the figure of Jesus, which I also think helps with that non-hierarchical sense. But I'm, I'm not a Christian, but if I'm going to take anything away from this mythology and what I hope other people do, because historically we do know that this is true, is the idea that Jesus was non-hierarchical and that Jesus was radical and that he did eat with prostitutes and poor people and he cared about those things and that's why Christianity is so powerful. The main message seems to have been love and that's why people were so drawn to it and why it spread so massively and why it was a threat to the Roman Empire. So I think that these two tales are fitting as feminist tales and that they match Christian mythology well, because Christian mythology is all about turning the tables. Yeah, and I think in some ways, actually, no, in one way, specifically, I think that Sue Monkey Kid to a certain extent, takes that idea even farther, or, or maybe in a different explicit path than Elizabeth Cunningham did, which is when she talks about the fact that by the end of things, Jesus was preaching, quote unquote, because a lot of what he was saying was stuff he believed in religiously motivated, but was actually explicitly political. And his goal was to make political societal change. And that's what he wanted to see. And that's what he was willing to become a martyr for. Not this idea that he was the son of God, but this idea that if he also became a martyr like John did, then he would likely be able to make more tangible societal change to help people who were essentially considered to be untouchable otherwise. And it was just a brief explicit mention in the second half of the book, but it really, really struck me to think of Jesus as a human political figure trying to make the world better and that he was able to use his religion as a tool to meet those ends, but was also calling for great reforms of all of these things. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I'm not a scholar on Christian history. But I think the historical period surrounding that time, and probably, I'm not sure, so this is a caveat, look this up for yourselves, friends. But the findings of whether Jesus was a real historical figure would have probably matched that. Because this was this was a revolutionary religion. And these ideas were revolutionary at the time. And I think that it's also telling, too, that these two very different narratives focused on that, especially with the portrayal of Judas, right? We know, at least from these two narratives, I don't know how much about it is talked about in the Bible, 
that Judas himself was a radical who wanted to stop Roman occupation. And Maggie and I are recording this the day before Orthodox Easter. This is where all of this is going down. So maybe have these ideas in your head during this day. Jesus was killed because he was a threat to the Roman Empire. That is biblical. That is canon. Yeah, and and Sumanth Kid really explores that, right? The whole thing that happens with Judas at the end in this book is this idea that he hated Roman occupation and what the Romans had done more than he loved anything else. More than he loved Jesus, more than he loved his sister, more than he loved his religion. That was his number one. Talking about themes that we've pulled out through the last couple of episodes about the fact that in theory, God is supposed to be your number one. It it wasn't for Judas. It was radicalization. It was destroying tyranny. And that was what went out for him. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you know anything about the Bible, you've read it because Maggie and I are probably (laughs) unlikely to do so in our busy lives right now. And also, as is probably clear after five episodes, the general base knowledge between the two of us is relatively low. For white Americans, we probably have a below average understanding of Christianity. Please let us know what the canonical story of Judas was, because I do think that it's interesting that both of these narratives focus so much on his hatred for the Roman Empire and his focus on politics. Because... All I've heard about it as an outsider is that he is the betrayer. Yeah, and there's a lot of gay panic involved around it too, often because of the kiss on the cheek, which I think is probably a separate episode. But as an outsider to this religion, that's what I know about Judas's story and his involvement in Jesus's story. Yeah. (laughs) What else do you want to talk about, Maggie? Maybe let's switch focus and talk a little bit about Anna again for a second and her growth in this part of the story, because she has, I think, a moment. And I think that this is related to to the lobby story, because in many ways, these parts are intertwined. But as we were talking about last time, one of the frustrating things about Anna is she says that she realizes that things are different and says that she starts to recognize her privilege in life and how her positioning has changed. I think that in this half of the book, we see some of that lip service actually turn into more action that supports that, which is really great to see, primarily in her shift in relationship to Lavi, who, I guess, story-wise, we didn't really do a summary for this part, but story-wise comes to her right after where we left off, tells her that her father has died, says that he had essentially been sold as a slave again, because as much as they call him a servant, he was a slave prior to this, and says, you've always been kind to me. I'm going to stay with you. This is how it's going to be now. And Anna realizes in that moment that she has, even though she's called Lavi a friend, she has never actually treated him like a friend. She's always been peripherally aware of the status difference between the two of them as, you know, a member of the family versus a servant of the family. And that's affected the ways in which her relationship with him has developed. And In this half of the book, she helps him get set up in his own life and he gets married and there's moments where she's able to recognize and praise the fact that he's able to build himself up as a free man, like when he calls her Anna for the first time by her first name and things like that. 
I guess related to that, I think that I feel personally like Kid didn't go far enough to make Lobby seem like an actual character. I think in many ways he was still kind of a plot prop and behaved in sort of unrealistic ways at the end. I can understand loyalty to Anna, but this man leaves his new wife, who is very outspoken against Anna often, out of some sense of loyalty and I won't abandon you in this mission to go back to the place where he was enslaved the entire time, was treated, generally speaking, very poorly. And I feel like that lack of realistic action did not do anything to serve actually making him a 3D character who felt like a complete and whole human. It just reinforced the plot prop thing. So sorry, I guess I went down quite a few paths there, but I think that they're intertwined as far as themes go. I agree. I think that Anna is a genuinely better human in this half of the book. I think she has done some growth and has, you even talked about it before, she starts teaching people how to read and write. I also, though, I also don't really see her meaningfully develop a friendship with Lobby. I understand that she and Yalfa help him get the library and job, and she also helps him read Greek. And it is it is nice that at the second half of the book, we see Lobby actually speak. That really, I don't know, reading it was a lot easier because <laughs> it's like, oh, Lobby's going to actually have some opinions now. And it has beyond three word sentences every 20 pages. <laughs> but I don't think that his narrative felt completely satisfying to me in part because he still plays the servant role to Anna even though they're calling each other brother and sister he still exists in the narrative to help Anna and he sacrifices everything in order to do that time and time again and I don't really see any conversations between the two of them where they're just talking about their feelings or hanging out Yeah, everything is in service to something for the plot, which I guess I get it's a book, you want things to be in service of the plot, but it means their relationship feels totally paper. Yeah, we don't really see a very genuine relationship between them besides for this master-servant narrative, which still feels uncomfortable, even though we've done some unpacking on it, has this realization, oh, I didn't actually know anything about Lavi, like, it's nice. But we're not actually unpacking it because they, we don't see anything outside of their relationship beyond Lavi. I call him my brother now, but also he just helps me out for free all the time. And it's just uncomfortable because he is a Black character and a slave. And I also, if if somebody who knows history would like to email us and let us know about what colorism looked like during this time, I would be really interested. I'm sure that the Romans had some fucked up ideas. I mean, I know they had some supremacist ideas, but I don't know what it means related to colorism and stuff and i wonder how much of that goes into lavi's treatment throughout this narrative but also i just think that it's poor writing and i wish that the author i honestly just wish if they were going to include this character who i don't think is completely three-dimensional i would have liked him not to be the only black character that's all yeah i totally agree and i think that one of the in my opinion failed ways that they tried to get around this is that Lobby's wife, oh god, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, she pushes back often against Anna and Anna's plans and things like that. But her having a voice does not erase the fact that Lobby doesn't and just goes along with everything. And also her protestings around the weird and kind of objectively messed up shit that's happening 
doesn't ever change anything. Yeah. And it's treated kind of like she's being a privileged bitch when she protests about this because she hasn't seen her husband for five months versus Anna who hasn't seen him for two years. It feels weird. Yeah, yeah. It just, the attempt was made. I don't think the attempt was successful with Lobby's character. And it's a huge, I think it's a really fundamentally big problem with the book. I agree. It's not as bad as it would have been had we never even tried. (laughs) But also, I think that this character needs to be rethought out completely in order for this book to have done Lobby any justice. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, I know that people, I think from the first half of the book, tried to play it off as being, well, you know, he's a side character anyways, he's barely there. Part of the reason he doesn't talk is because he's not involved very much in what's happening. Who tried to play it off? Where, Where did you hear this? I saw a couple of reviewers talking about that. And it's like, sure, maybe, I guess, I still think that's bullshit. But in this half of the book, he's actively involved in everything he's there all the time he's on all the adventures there's no defending it anymore i don't think there was any defending it to start but it just feels so obviously poorly characterized and it's weird too because it's he's in my opinion he's sort of one of the only poorly characterized people in the book sue monk kid can really write these characters and It's just bad that Lobby is the only Black character and the only character who doesn't have any thoughts or opinions that apparently differ from Anna's. And he continues to be in this master-servant relationship even after he's supposedly a free man. For reasons that I don't understand, why would you continue? I don't There is a time, I think when we were first introduced to Pamphylia, I'm sure I'm pronouncing the name wrong. Sorry, guys. Where Lobby meets her and he has this really cartoon character moment. You can see the eyebrows waggling. And I think that really exemplifies what you're talking about with him being not well written, especially compared to all these other characters who feel realistic. It's just this really bad cartoon moment. His jaw is kind of dropped. And that's what Anna says. And she gives him a grin. And it's like, oh, sexual being. But only for this one point in time and it's ridiculous and over the top and I think that it's it's just uncomfortable because these are stereotypes I'm sorry that have happened throughout history we've it made me think of a minstrel show and I know that sounds extreme but that's also something you kind of have to be aware about when you're when you only have one black character in your book and he's not particularly well written in any other way too. So editors, writers and editors, writers, you need to do better. And then editors, what the fuck are you doing letting this happen? Is there anything else we want to talk about along those lines? I do think Anna has significant growth in the second half though. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I do too. It's just unfortunate that there was some redemption in the story arc for how Lavi was treated and it wasn't enough because that also then reflects poorly on Anna's character, right? Who does have a lot of growth in other perspectives, but then reads as if she just has this mental block or some bullshit like that about Lavi specifically. I have a, I read a review about this. I half read a review by a stuffy old white man that accused this book of having, of having a really woke character in Anna. And I'm using quotation marks when I say that word, because I recognize that that's not my word to say, but it wasn't this reviewers either. And I think that's just so interesting. I get 
yes, she can read and write and that's unrealistic, right? And the scholar thing that she goes to is depicted in a kind of unrealistic light too, because that's not, Sumon Kid admits that that's not exactly how they operated. The, the scholar community that she's a part of. But I don't think that Anna is particularly woke in any other way. This is not a super duper progressive book. All it's saying, all this book is saying is that women deserve the right to read and write and deserve the right to have voices. And yes, that was radical for the time, certainly. But also Jesus included women in his camp. It's unreasonable to think that no woman ever throughout history had this idea that was like, oh, I deserve to be equal to a man. And we have historical accounts that say that women did have that idea. It's not like it's new. Yeah, yeah. And also this idea about the fact that it's unrealistic to have a woman read and write. Sure, yes, broadly speaking, that's true, right? That wasn't a thing. But if that never changed, starting with one or two individuals, women probably wouldn't be reading and writing today because somebody had to start somewhere. So. And we do know that ancient women did write. We have accounts from ancient India of women writing, right? This poem, The Thunder, is thought to be written by a woman. So we know that that's just not the case, that some woman somehow found a way. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. This book is not particularly progressive. I think it's still interesting, but it's not that, (laughs) it's not, it's not that far left, I guess, so to speak. And I think it's really telling that there's legitimately people out there who think that this is hella progressive. And I think it really speaks a lot to me about where other people in the world are, I guess, with their political views and and rights and things like that and thoughts about who should have rights, essentially. Yeah, it's really concerning. So listeners, not everyone, not everyone thinks like us. I'm sure if you're listening, you probably are progressive to some extent on the large global scale. <laughs> Otherwise, you would have turned us off. Either that or you hate listening to us. Yeah. I guess that this might be a, a, a good point to ask then. Do you think ultimately then that this is a feminist book? I mean, yes, I think so. But also our definitions, I don't know. I've been really struggling with my definition of feminism through, since the start of this podcast. I think that, yes, I think on the scale of Christian narratives, this is probably a feminist book. It does a lot for women. I think last episode, I was still too mad about Wabi to acknowledge that. But also, I think that, I think our definition of feminism in this podcast has grown to be equality and justice. And we're looking at that through the lens of gender, specifically, right, and gender presentation, Because I know for me, at least, that's just always been an easier analysis point. I don't know, and maybe some listeners can write in and let me know if this is wrong. I don't know if I weren't a white woman, though, that I would read this as inclusive of me, you know, in terms of feminism, even though Anna isn't necessarily white. It it just feels like a kind of very Western white lady feminism to me. Yeah, I totally agree. I... I was actually considering going so far to say no, because I think that our definition of feminism is about equality and justice for everyone. And I'm tired, I think, and like, this isn't a commentary about anything else, but just like the longer we do this, the more I'm like, 
I don't want to just define things as white feminism anymore. If it's white feminism, it's not feminism. And I think that that's where I come out with this book. And I think that maybe it gets some points potentially over other books that we've sort of classified as being white feminist, half a point for the fact that it tried, but it failed. So ultimately... Yeah, I still come out to the fact that like, I don't know that I would call this a feminist book. I wouldn't recommend this to somebody who was looking for a feminist book because it doesn't feel inclusive. So I guess I'm saying no. And maybe this is going to be the new turning point for me thinking about definitions of feminism, or maybe it's going to be different again in two weeks, because I feel like we constantly change the game with this question. And that's okay, because we're thinking about it. But on May 1st at 4.42pm, I'm kind of feeling no. I think that I would give this book to other people were the just specifically the lobby narrative. If the lobby narrative, if that that's all it is. And I know that's such a small portion of the book that it feels weird to say. And I feel like I'm being nitpicky and I feel like we're going to get a lot of criticism for that or people are going to be mad about it. But it's true. If that were different, I think that this would have been a really strong narrative. And I would have said, yeah, this is a feminist book, hands down. But because it's this one character who is the only Black character, right? And it's handled so very poorly. Even though they tried to redeem it, like they still did in a very clumsy way. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I agree because white feminism isn't feminism for everyone. And it, it would be maybe different too if it were historically important in some way. But this book was written in 2020. And we have different narratives out right now, right? Feminism, a lot of people are saying that feminism has just been white lady feminism and we need to focus on everyone if we ever want to get anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think too, you were mentioning earlier how even if Lavi wasn't Black, that would be a great improvement because there, there is so many things that feel racially connected here. But I think that even if he was another character... There was also a lot of really bad inherent classism that happened here because of this, because of what happens between the master servant relationship that there was just a lot of workshopping, I think, that needed to be done with that character and that role in the book. Yeah, I agree. I understand. I think there are other ways that we could have explored class, maybe through Nazareth. But yeah, on it, the fact that there is never actually, even though they say there is, that there's never actually really a, a true deep deterioration of the master servant relationship I think is very telling of the book you can call each other brother and sister all you want but if one character is constantly like moving heaven and high hell to serve another character and getting nothing in return really and you're like oh well the job right oh she taught him how to read and write yeah but like we don't get to see that we don't get any like strong emotional connection they're not friends from what we see it's a messy. It's a messy part of 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 a of an otherwise tight book, and uh, yeah, I I, I we're probably de- beating a dead horse here at this point because I, really bo- both of these episodes now have been a lot about lobby. But I think that's good to know, though, right? Because like our thing, our whole thing on this podcast, we tend to read more progressive books. We go out of our way to read books from voices that we haven't read a lot of. But this is probably a book. Sumon Kid is really popular. She is a best selling author. This is a book that a lot of women are reading. And so it's it's good that we read it. And we're picking up on this issue, but a lot of people aren't. I'm sure some of you guys are angry that we keep talking about this. And you're like, you keep beating a dead horse. And this is a great book. And why are you hating on it so much? The world is not, it's not 
what we like to talk about on this podcast. That's also super important too. You know, we handpick and handcraft the way these seasons go and the books that we choose to read. And I think especially after last season, where I think we had some more books that we hadn't read before this season, we really made sure to craft books that would feel really relevant to the themes of the podcast. But that does often mean that like we're then there, there's a like confirmation bias there too, right? Because we're selecting books that support our worldviews. And we're still growing as people. Like our worldviews aren't there yet, but that's why we're reading these books. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And it's good to definitely like take a zoom out every once in a while, I think, and like see the lay of the land in other ways. This book angered a lot of people. <laughs> Just remember that, everyone. <laughs> It did. It did. And we were kind of mad about it too, but for very different reasons. What's your homework this week, my friend? So I'm still, this is my last week of grad school. Uh... <laughs> the real homework is Harmony's homework. I don't know if this is homework. Well, I know I've already talked about this, but I want to be more involved in community in general and do that in more actionable ways. So ways that I have done that is by actually joining like community groups and trying to see what what else is going on. I joined this text thing called The Nudge because a few episodes ago we were talking about being better allies in general. And this is a like daily text thing where somebody essentially gives you a course in Black Lives Matter and how to be a better racist ally versus advocate. So I'm going to continue doing that because in 14 days, I get my vaccine. And that means that I can have more real life human connections with people again. And I want to use that to do more actionable things which I know is all very vague, but that that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep on doing these small things that seem actionable. Yeah, I think that's the most important place to start is making sure that you are doing things that you can actually do, right? It's all well and good to spout off your ideals about like what you wish you could do or what you wish you could see in the world, but having thoughts isn't any good to anyone in case, unless you can put it into action. So I think that you're actually in some ways doing the hardest work there, which is like putting your your money where your mouth is, even if it feels like it's in comparatively small ways. My homework this week is, I guess, more related to the book, just because we're talking about history and history is my job. Part of what I'm doing right now is, and this is like a long fucking process, like this is going to be a multi-year project for me. So it's probably going to come back, but I'm writing an interpretive plan for my institution that guides how we talk about everything that we talk about if that makes sense it's like a it's like a, a, a it's almost like a, a, a pedagogy like a philosophy on how we need to talk about history and this just really reminds me that one of the main focuses I think we need to have as an organization is actively unpacking whose voice is being excluded from history and why and what conditions made that happen, which I mean, is something that I'm always thinking about and always aware of. But this really gave me like the the impetus to make sure that that's actually put into words in a document that's going to be signed off on because I'm probably not going to retire at my organization. And this is something I can do, which is also like a comparatively small thing. But can help bring more equity to my organization after my tenure there is over. Yeah. Listeners, I think that's actually great homework for a lot of us if we have the means. 
right? We live in a capitalist society. And this is how I try to do a lot of my social justice work too, is by work. I have some choice on like the projects I create for school. So which are meant to be used in a classroom or a library someday. So if you can make actionable work in which you're being an ally in some way within your actual work, that's a great way to be an ally, right? Because you're you're affecting your institution and you're still doing the work. It doesn't matter that you're getting paid for it. Like you're still making something and energy is low because we live in a capitalist system and jobs want to suck away all your time and energy. So yeah, it's true. It's true. And I think especially when you work at bigger institutions too, it feels like change can be really difficult to come by. But starting with just one project or making one change at work has ripple effects. Great homework, Mags. What are we reading next week? We are reading an undetermined poem. We're doing one more week of Christianity stuff. So you all have to suffer with us for one more week. And we're reading an unidentified poem about Christian Christian mythology. But it's a poetry episode. So, um, you know, no intense reading for all of you. Yay. All right. That, is that it, folks? That's it, folks. Talk to you next week. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.